Good morning. Uh, scripture is a really, really interesting thing to me in that when you, whenever you approach a text, whenever you approach a passage of scripture, we all will tend to draw something out from it depending on our life circumstances, where we are, what is going on in our personal life, uh, who we are as people. We all tend to see different things in, in different passages. And so uh, some of you know that uh, we've been preaching this series uh, along with a group of other pastors and other leaders in other churches, uh, mainly around the Midwest. But my buddy, uh, Ron, he's a, a preacher in Lincoln here uh, in Illinois. Uh, he and I have been, we, we share manuscripts is what this looks like, that when we kind of finish our notes for the week, we send them to the other pastors and leaders, and they'll uh, kind of offer you some feedback or offer you some ideas, or you might steal some of their ideas. And we've just been sharing this series. And so when I got uh, Ron's manuscript, I was not surprised uh, by uh, what he saw in this text because, that we're going to study today, uh, because Ron is like a father on steroids. Ron, Ron loves being a dad. Uh, he loves being a grandpa. He is all about that. And so when we read the passage here in a few minutes, uh, you're going to see a whole bunch of dad language in this text that Ron immediately just kind of saw in the text because of who he is as a person. You are not at all going to be surprised if you've been attending Northwest for a while on the language that I seized on in this text, which is adoption language, right? Um, and it, it, it is always one of my great joys to be able to connect the idea of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish with the theme of adoption, because uh, they are two of my uh, favorite things to talk about. And a lot of you know that uh, several years ago, we felt called on uh, to pursue uh, adoption, and we have since uh, adopted uh, two wonderful kids, and adoption has just been such a blessing to our lives. And, and one of the things that we uh, found out as we kind of walked the adoption trail is there are a couple things about adoption. One is uh, adoption is stressful. Um, I remember... Um, Adoption has changed over, over the years. There used to be a time where you would kind of get cleared for adoption and you would go uh, to an orphanage or something like that and, and get connected to the child you would eventually bring home. It's really not like that anymore. Now what you do is you get approved for adoption and then you produce a book about your family and about your life. And that book, with your permission, is given to prospective parents to look at and the, the birth families choose uh, who's going to adopt uh, their child. And so you always know when your book is going out. And so there's always this kind of moment of anticipation and are they going to choose us? And then a little bit of letdown and a little bit of disappointment when you're not selected. But I remember a, a few uh, years ago when we were waiting for Lila in particular, we had just started uh, the now is the time kind of dreaming. So th this was a, a few years ago now, uh, probably probably more like four years ago now. Uh, but we uh, had our, our book out and uh, with a couple other families, and that kind of was a heightened sense of uh, fear and, and stress and all that. But then 10 minutes before I left for a meeting, about now is the time where we were going to be uh, brainstorming the vision for this building. We were going to be figuring out 10 minutes before I left, we got a call from our adoption agency that twins had been born the night before and that the family was going to be making a decision about the family the next morning. Right? And so we agreed to have our book go out, and then I went to the meeting. And it was like, did I just become father of twins, 
or uh, like what is happening right now. And you might imagine it was kind of hard to focus in on that meeting. And, and that's kind of, and obviously I'm not father of twins. So, you know, you, you can see how that went. But that's one of the kind of stressful parts of it is that up and down kind of moment. Um, and so it, it's stressful. It, it can be a little intrusive. Uh, there are very few people on this planet that know as much about Cheryl and I as our adoption agency. Uh, I remember when we were finalizing both our kids' adoptions, they give us a, a pack of stuff they know about us, and it's honestly about an inch thick. Uh, financially, uh, they know, know everything. Our marriage, they know everything. Uh, the way we raise Sam, they, they know all uh, of, of that stuff. And then this is obviously, I think, pretty well known about adoption is that it's costly, um, that there are ways. If you're ever interested in adopting, please, Cheryl and I would love to talk to you about it because there are ways to offset the cost uh, tax code-wise. And, and so there's an adoption tax credit that makes it a little more affor- affordable, but, but it is costly. And, and all that being said, all the ups and downs of it, adoption is, it's beautiful. And it is a blessing. And I remember, I remember standing before a judge with both of our kids. And uh, when you're standing before the judge, you have to promise that you're going to assume certain responsibilities like educating your child and loving your child and feeding your child and all that stuff. And the judge asks you, are you willing to do this? It's like, yes, yes, yes. And then with both of our kids, it says, it is as if this child was born to you, right? It is as if this child was born to you and let, let it be so. And the declaration is clear. You are now family. Um, So if you have your Bibles, open up to Galatians 3. And this adoption language that Paul seizes on a couple of times in Scripture, I think he realizes that this is really, really important to God because what we're going to learn is that God formed his family through adoption. And so adoption has always been close to the heart of God because this is how God forms his family. This is how you and I came to be sons and daughters was that God allowed us in, God adopted us in, God went through that process. So we're gonna be in chapter three, starting in verse 26, uh, and we're gonna kind of meander to the adoption language. You'll you'll see it here. Um, And then uh, then we're gonna jump into chapter four a little bit as well. All right, so uh, chapter three, verse 26 of Galatians. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is, uh, there, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and are heirs according to the promise. All right, so let's pause here just for a minute before we continue on. I want you to understand this, and this is going to be the theme of the sermon. So if you need to sleep, if you need to go, right, uh, you'll have the point of the message. Through faith in Jesus, you are a child of God. You are a child of God through faith. Uh, You are a son. You you are a daughter. You are his child. And he talks about this happening primarily through faith. It's not through works of the law. It's not through things that we have done. We become children of God. We belong to Christ via faith. And and there's some family imagery here, right? That that I love that imagery that when you go uh, to pick up your kids or your grandkids, like at a park or whatever, they're at an event, you might walk into that park and your child or your grandchild comes like running toward you. and, And you might say to the person charge, oh, they're with me, or this one is mine. This is my child. He or she belongs to me. This is the language Paul is using. You belong to Christ. 
You are his precious son. You are his precious daughter. And this goes to your identity. That our culture right now will tell you that your main chief identity is your sexuality. It is not. Our culture will tell you that your chief main identity is your race. It is not. Our culture will tell you that your chief and main identity is your family. It is not. Those are all parts of your identity, obviously, but they are not your core identity. When you begin to think about yourself, as a lot of our songs today articulated, when you begin to think about yourself and who you are, the primary way that you should think about yourself is that I am a son or a daughter of God. I have been adopted into his family. And Paul's point is, is that when you adopt that as your identity, it changes everything. Notice what Paul says, that because Jesus has adopted this into his family, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. That he died for both the Jew and the Gentile. He allows both into the family of God. So as Christians, we understand this truth. Racism in the kingdom of God, racism in general, but racism in the kingdom of God is wrong. There is no room, there is no place for racism. So let's take a moment to define that. There's, there's a couple of forms of racism. One is active racism, where I make assumptions about you based on your race. This might be in the form of a joke. It might be uh, in the form of a post on social media. It might be an ideology that I carry around that was handed down by my mom and dad. But I make assumptions about your character. I make assumptions about your work habits. I make uh, assumptions about your intentions based on your race. This happens all the time. And because of the work of Jesus to adopt Jews and Gentiles into his family, Because of the work of Jesus, the only assumption that we are to make about people is that they are loved and they they, they were died for and Jesus loves them greatly. So active racism, it comes with it taking action. So I don't hire the person based on their race. I don't buy the house because it's next door to someone of another race. I don't shop at that store anymore and it's all simply based on race. Now then, that's active racism And then there's passive racism, which is more what this text is describing, that this is based on the Jewish mindset when it came to the Gentiles, that the Jews believed the Gentiles needed to become Jewish in order to be Christian. So they were demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised and celebrate certain holidays and observe special days. And what was kind of lurking underneath the surface of that was a passive racism. And here's what it is. You need to be more like us because we are better. Right? That's the kind of more passive form of this. And this is so hard because we live in our country, we live in a great melting pot. Uh, and sometimes individual cultures within our melting pot can take this tone. That our way of thinking is better. Our culture is better. Our race is better. Be more like us. And this is a passive form of racism. That the the message of the church needs to be, don't be more like us. The the, The message of the church needs to be, be more like Jesus, right? Don't be like us, right? Be like Jesus, right? Follow him, love him, give your life to him. So maybe you grew up in a racial environment a racist environment with a racist mom or dad or, or grandparents. And here's why I say all this. This can be super hard to see in, in yourself. It is very easy to see in others, 
right? When you're at work or when you're on social media or whatever and somebody makes a post or they make a joke or they make a comment and you're like, that was racist, right? I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they think that. And you can see it in them. This is really, really hard to see in ourselves. It just is, right? Nobody in the world thinks that they are a racist because that word carries with it a a certain stigma in our culture. And so it can be hard to see in yourself. And so here's all I want to ask us to do, and we'll move on to the task, is ask Jesus through his Holy Spirit to reveal to you, uh, and I've asked him to reveal this to me, do I have any racist tendencies? Do I make assumptions? Do I make decisions that are based on other people's races? Ask God to reveal that to you um, because the, the, one of the tones of the gospel is that this is for everyone, that this is for everyone. And racism is kind of an enemy of that. And so we want, we want to be done with that to the best of our ability. So ask God to reveal to you, do you have any racist tendency? And then invite the Holy Spirit to help you overcome that. All right, Paul goes on that because of the gospel, because this is for everyone, there is neither slave nor free. Now, we tend to think of slavery primarily as a race issue in this culture uh, because of of our background. In the first century, the the way slavery typically played out is that you might have a a debt with someone, you might owe them some money, and you could actually voluntarily become a servant to them in order to pay off the debt so that you didn't have to go to debtor's prison, which was no fun at all, right? And so you could say, hey, I'll be your servant, I'll be your slave for a year, Um, And I I will pay off the debt, and they would allow you to do that. So in the first century, it had less racial overtones and more economic overtones. And so one of the things we learn in in light of the gospel, that this is for everyone, that Jesus came for all, here's another truth. Classism is wrong, right? That classism is a mindset where I think I am better because of my economic position, uh, because of the amount of money I make. And I make assumptions about you and your character and your worth based on your economic position. Now, one of the things I've always loved, my family, we live in a very economically diverse neighborhood. Uh, My family and I, we live in the West End, and it is just economically diverse. I remember when we first moved in there, we had some family come to visit us, and um, uh, they plugged us into their GPS, and they were kind of coming down the main street by, by our house. And at first, they were into some kind of run-down houses. And uh, our family had the thought, like, man, you know, why, I wonder why they bought here. These houses seem kind of run-down. And then they came to these giant, like, mansions. And they were like, what are they thinking? They can't afford this. What on earth? And then they came to the normal houses, uh, which, is, which is where we live, the average homes, Right. And, uh, and, and that's always just been true of the West End. If you've ever been out there, you know that you will have a uh, multiple hundred thousand dollar mansion a few blocks away from a, a rundown or even abandoned house. And we have lived there for 12 years. And I will tell you, as I've gotten involved in that community, Decatur really struggles with this. We have a lot of classism in our community. I actually think, my, my theory on this is, I actually think Decatur struggles more with classism than racism. I, I do. I, I don't know if that's true, but that's just kind of my pet theory, that we make judgments in our city about a person's overall worth based on their net worth. We, we do that here. And the gospel says none of that matters. 
that every single person is important to God and valued. And Jesus came and died and gave his life for all so that we could all be adopted into the family. All right, the last example he gives is that there is, in, because of the gospel, there is neither male nor female. And what we learn is that gender discrimination, I'm just gonna hit on all of them today, right? Uh, gender discrimination is wrong and should disappear in light of the gospel. You actually see this in the ministry of Jesus. That uh, and Jesus lived in a male-dominated culture. He grew up there. There was actually this prayer they found uh, in some artifacts by that Jewish men used to pray. <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger, but this was the prayer back in the first century. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a woman. They used to pray that in the first century. Right? You, you talk about gender discrimination and a male-dominated culture. And what you see is Jesus rejects a lot of that. Jesus brings women into his ministry. Jesus exalts women. Jesus puts them in positions of influence and leadership. And the early church follows suit. All right? Jesus tried to dismantle a lot of that. And our culture has observed some of that in our history. And so we have taken a swing to the other way, which is also unhealthy in my opinion, where we kind of mock and denigrate men. Because we saw the way things happened in the past. We said, we said we're going to go the opposite direction, and, and we're going to exalt women, which is good, but now we're going to denigrate men, which is not good. And the biblical approach of all of this is that we are one in Christ, that we are different from one another as male and female. And I'm always kind of astounded by how controversial of a statement that is in our culture. We are different from each other right? Uh, that, that, that we are different from each other, but we are equal in Christ. And so Christ died so that his sons and his daughters could become part of his family. And we tend to think, I thought Scott hit on this really well in the offering uh, thought today, but um, we tend to think about this in a very individualized way. Uh, we, we just do. Remember the first banner um, that uh, the first banner of Galatians is that Jesus is enough, that his work is enough, his grace is enough, his love is enough, his effort is enough, uh, uh, Jesus is enough. Here's what we tend to do with that statement. He is enough for me. We tend to individualize that statement, that he is enough for me. We tend to think about it through the lens of our life and our sins and uh, our situation, and we tend to individualize it quite a bit, and we forget about the second banner. The second banner is that Jesus is for everyone so that he is enough, but he is for everyone. And so it is in the context of this that we understand that he is not just enough for me, although that's true. He is enough for them. He is enough for my neighbor. He is enough for the person across town. He, he is enough for the person sitting next to me. He is enough for, for the person down the road. He is enough for the person who's gonna serve me food at my restaurant later on today. He, he, he is enough for the person in the other country. He is enough. And it is in this context when we don't just individualize it, but we kind of uh, make it a global understanding that he is enough for all. It is in this context that racism begins to fall apart. It is in this uh, context that classism begins to fall apart. It is in this context uh, that uh, all of that stuff begins to fall apart because we understand we are all invited in. Jesus died for all so that we could all become sons and daughters of his. And all of that stuff begins to fall apart. So a nation never just has a race problem. A nation has an understanding of the gospel and a Jesus problem, an understanding of Jesus thing. 
It's never just as simple as racism or classism or gender discrimination. That is way oversimplifying it. It is a spiritual problem that we have forgotten that the gospel is for everyone, that Jesus is for all, and he died for all so that we could all be adopted in. And this should change the way we think about them, love them, and serve others. Paul continues on in the text. All right, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental uh, spiritual forces of this world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. You are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. He goes on to describe the difference between a slave or a servant who works on a property and a son. And he says, listen, there is no question about it. The son is an heir to everything the father has. The son is an heir, but he is subject to a trustee until a time set by the father, right? So a father who might be a multimillionaire says, my son or my daughter, they are gonna inherit everything I have, but they're not gonna do it till they're 25, right? They're not gonna do it until they're 30, they're not going to do it until some time set by the father to say they are mature enough to receive all of this inheritance. And parents do this all the time, right? In other words, the son is an heir to the property, but he doesn't really own the property even as a son until the father says that he does. So the Bible says that we are slaves to sin. And all that means is that we all sin, all screw up, all have done the right th wrong thing, all have failed on some level. And God set up a guardian he set up a trustee called the law to help his people navigate their sinfulness. We talked about some, this some last week, but the law provided parameters to God's holiness, his expectations, a sacrificial system when we fall short. It did a lot of good things, but there came a time that was sent, that a time set by the father that said, you are now gonna become my heirs. There's no, I'm doing away with the trustee, that, that whole deal, right? Now there is a time that, is going to be, that, that was set by the father when he said, you can now become uh, my heirs. And, and that time came when he sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Whenever you talk to somebody that has adopted, I have found this almost universally true in people that I talk to that have adopted children. Whenever you talk to someone that has adopted children, they will almost always have a, a thought in their head about the timing of God in relation to their adoptions, right? And, and so th this was true of both of our children, for instance, that um, when uh, we were uh, adopting our son, Sam, uh, we had uh, about two or three months before he was born, we had an adoption fall through. And I'm not even gonna get into the whole story because we'll be here all afternoon, but we could see in that situation how God's timing was perfect and how that failed adoption actually led us to Sam. 
right? It's kind of an interesting thing of God's timing. With, with Lila, it had to do with Cheryl's job and kind of waiting for her. We knew her job was ending, but we were kind of waiting for that to happen and uh, kind of trying to wait for some severance and how all of that unfolded. And then Lila came at, at just the perfect time. Honestly, it was just the perfect time for all of that to work out perfectly. And I have found that people adopt, you know, I can't uh, speak to people that have their children naturally because we just adopted. But I'll tell you that when it comes to adoption, almost every family that I talk to has this uh, element of God's timing. And Paul hits on that here. I don't know why God's timing was God's timing. But there came a time where God said to his son, it is time. Go to earth be born of a woman, be born under the law, and redeem those under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons and, and daughters. And uh, there, there came this time where the, the scripture says that he came to redeem us. So I want you to think about that word. You remember we talked about that word a week or two ago, that the word redeem, it just means to pay a great price so that circumstances can change. So I want you to think about, there, there's three examples you could think about. Think about like a ransom. All right, that's the negative example, right? Think about a ransom, that someone you love uh, is being held ransom. You would sell your house, you would sell everything that you have to pay the ransom so your family members' circumstances can change. All right, that's what Paul is describing here. Think about having children, or specifically adoption. That I can tell you that once you have decided that you are going to adopt children, the costliness of it falls away and you begin to develop this attitude of, we're just going to do whatever it takes, right? We'll, we'll do bake sales, we'll do whatever, we're, we're, you know, I've talked to a lot of adoptive families that have this mindset, we're, we're going to do kind of what it takes to change our circumstances and, and the circumstances of the child to, to do what we feel God has called us uh, to, to do. Now, here's a fun example. Think about Disney World. All right, that there comes a time where you decide to go to Disney World, and uh, here's how I would say it. You are willing to pay a great price to see your kids' circumstances changed for the day or for the week. You are willing to pay a great price, right, for, for that. And this is what Jesus did. He paid a great price. He paid his life on a cross so that we could move from slaves to sin under a good trustee, uh, the law, slaves to sin under the law, and that we were able to become sons and daughters of God. And if you belong to Christ, you have been adopted into his family. And here's what Paul says. You are now, one of the things that Jesus did is he came at just the right time to make you an heir so you're, you are a son or daughter of God, but you are now heirs of the promise. You remember the promise to Abraham that the entire world would be blessed through Abraham's line? Jesus is that blessing. And so you have become heirs of your father God. And so the, the scriptures talk about this a lot, but I want to work through just a real short list of some of the things that you are heirs to, all right? If you could begin to wear this identity that you are son and daughter of God, these are some of the things that you are heirs to, that God has promised, first of all, to be your father. We sing a song about this, that he is a good, good father. And this, this is a struggle for some of us because you didn't have a good dad. And you didn't have a dad that set a godly example in this, but whatever your kind of feeling is, if you could kind of imagine for a minute about what a good father would look like, God is a good father and he's yours. 
He's your father, right? Um, God has promised that all things work out for the good of his children. So God is at work in your circumstances to take even the most troubling circumstances and bring about some measure of good. God has promised to comfort us in our trials, 2 Corinthians, that he has a plan to, to show up in the midst of our difficulties and comfort us in our trouble. God has promised us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, God has promised, promised us new life in Christ. That when you gave your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit invaded you and began to transform you into the likeness of Jesus. God has promised you in Ephesians 1, 3, Paul's kind of cryptic language here, but you can imagine what this is. God has promised you every spiritual blessing in Christ. All right? Try to put that on for size, right? You, you think about your kids. My son's got a birthday coming up in a week and a half or whatever, and he's already kind of like dropping hints about what he wants, right? And, you know, he's, well, he's not dropping hints. He's telling us what he wants, right? <laughs> dropping hints makes it sound like it's cryptic, and it's not, right? Um, he's having a Lego-themed birthday, and he has all of the, the stuff that he, all these Lego things that he wants, and I also want to send him to college someday. Um, and uh, so, I, I, like, we, we've had to tell him, like, we can't afford all these sets, dude. I'm just telling you right now, even if the family like pooled all of our resources, like your future is important and being able to eat is important. So like you're, you're not getting them all, but you'll, you'll get some. Now measure that, all right? And I, I'd like to think that we do the best that we can, that we do the best we can to be good parents. Measure that against Christ. What is my blessing in Christ Jesus? Everything. Every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. Not everything you want, because you and I are sinful, and sometimes we want $2,000 worth of Legos. So it's not, it's not everything you want, it's everything he wants for you. And he gives you everything. Our inheritance is reserved for us in heaven in 1 Peter 1.4. So there's an element of this that is future-oriented, that because you're his son or daughter, he has a place reserved for you. And God has promised to finish the work that he has started in us. That when you first came to Christ, broken and bleeding and hurting, God said, man, I'm gonna start something and I'm not gonna stop until it's finished. So I have a plan for you, I have a purpose for you, and I'm gonna carry it through to completion. God has promised us peace when we pray. If you're anxious today, as a son or daughter of God, you can pray to, to your father and he will give you peace. God has promised to supply every one of our needs. So God has promised to take care of us. And here's why this is so important, guys. We will make decisions in life. As a matter of fact, every decision you make in your life um, flows from your sense of identity. Every single decision you make flows from your identity. And some of us are walking around with an unhealthy identity, an unhealthy sense of who we are. And you are, I promise you, you, you are making decisions, you are moving forward in life, you are treating the people around you and the people that you love most based on who you believe you are. And for some of you, it's like something someone said to you one time. Like someone on the playground or someone that you know called you a loser or said you weren't talented or said you were weird. You know, you're, you're a weirdo. And those words got lodged 
into your heart, and you are now walking around with that as your identity. For some of you, it's something culture has preached to you. It's your sexuality, and you think your whole identity, the whole basis of who you are, is based on your desires and your sexuality, and you are walking around with that identity, making decisions and moving forward based on that identity. For some of you, it's a decision that you made, a decision that you regret, but now you, that has become embedded in you based on your actions, and so now you just think of yourself as like a thief or addicted, or divorced, or whatever the case may be, and you just walk around, this is who you are. And I want to tell you, no, it's not. That is not who you are. That is not who God created you to be. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, you are a son. You are a daughter. He loves you. He has a plan for you, and he sent his son for you. And I don't care that they, I mean, I do care, but that shouldn't, I, I don't care that they called you a loser back in, back in middle school. That, that, that is not who you are. I know that's messed up with your head, and that's messed up with your life, but I want you to know that is not who you are. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. I know that this culture has told you that your sexuality is in total who you are, and you have maybe bought into that and made decisions based on that. I want you to know that that is not true, and that is not who you are. You are a daughter. You are a son of God, and he has a plan and a purpose for you. I know you made a decision you regret. We all have. I know you made a decision that you regret, but you are not just the divorced person. Right? You are not just the one who made the mistake. You are not, ju- you are not the addict you, that, that they say you are. You are not that. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. And let me tell you how important this is to God. It's pretty important to me, which is why I'm uh, preaching way over today, but, um, because this is so important to me. Let me tell you how important it is to God. This is so important to God that when you gave your life to Christ, he gave you his Holy Spirit, Paul says, he gave you his Holy Spirit who cries out, Abba, which is uh, the, the Hebrew word, the, the Greek word here. Uh, it could be translated as daddy, right? And so God has given you his spirit who, when you are tempted to believe I'm just a loser or I'm just my sexuality or I, I'm just an addict, that, that is who I am. God has given you the, his Holy Spirit who is trying to whisper into your heart and whisper into your mind, no. You have a daddy, and you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God, and he loves you very much. That's how important this is to God, is that he has given you his spirit to remind you and motivate you, because God knows that you are going to make decisions based on this, based on this idea. Your everything flows from your identity, who you believe you are. And I know your parents may have said something. The kids on the playground may have said something. This culture may have said something. But today, I want you to receive it from the Holy Spirit. You are a son, and you are a daughter of God. And begin to make decisions out of that identity. Begin to make decisions out of who he says that you are. You catch the song that we sang earlier? You are who I am who you say I am. I am not who they said I am. I am not who culture says I am. I, I am not any of that. I am who you, God, say I am. And he says you are loved. He says you are his son. He says you are his daughter. He says he's willing to go to the cross for you, die for you, secure your place in eternity, give you his Holy Spirit. That is who you are. And this is a hard battle in our culture. 
because our culture has kind of adapted and, and bought into this idea that uh, of all these things that people are. And, and, and it's not just sexuality. That's the one, I hit on that one a couple times, but in our culture, you are your mistake. You are your sin. You, you, are, you are the thing that you regret most. And we attach that to people, especially in the public eye. We attach it to people and that's who you are forever. That's not how God works. That may be how your grandma worked. That might be how your dad worked. That might be how this culture works. That is not how God works. God looks you in the eye and says, you are forgiven. I love you. I have a plan for you. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and let's move forward into your future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we believe what Paul is writing here. That I am who you say I am. And in the middle of a a time where maybe we've made a huge mistake or we've done something we regret or we've said something we wish we hadn't said, we've walked into something we wish we hadn't walked into, it is easy to walk around in that as our identity. This is who I am. I'm the screw up. I'm the mess up. I'm the loser. I'm, I'm whatever the case may be and we walk around in a faulty identity. And today, we wanna receive your grace. Today, we wanna receive a fresh start. Today, we may have entered into this room believing that we are any number of anything that somebody said to us or someone said about us or we read it on social media and they were talking about us and now we have that as our identity. Today, we wanna let that go. We wanna leave it here in this room and we wanna walk out of here understanding that we are your children. And Jesus came, born to a woman under the law to redeem those under the law as heirs of your kingdom. And so today we wanna receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. We wanna walk around in a new identity, understanding that we are who you say we are. And Jesus on the cross has spoke loud and clear on this issue. So may we know who we are in you. May that be our overwhelming identity, that we are loved. We are your children. You have a plan for us. You have given us your Holy Spirit. May we walk around in this identity. And may our whole lives be changed as a result. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.